Good afternoon. It's Friday the 14th of July 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and by video link, we've got Vanessa Bailey from, well, Vanessa, an electricity-less uh, Damascus. Not only Damascus, the whole of Syria is on blackout at the moment, and we don't really know why, but um, conditions are not getting any better. Yes, okay. Well, we're going to get straight on then with uh, the BBC. Uh, and last week, Vanessa, the BBC released uh, a documentary about the Captagon trade. Now, Captagon is an amphetamine, a drug. Uh, tell us a bit about this. Well, basically, this was, yes, as you said, it was a documentary released at the end of June uh, by BBC Arabic, which was then also released on BBC News World Service. Uh, they entitled it Syria's Economy Built on Drugs, and uh, the Arabic version had the original title of Captagon Inside Syria's Drug Trafficking Empire, the BBC World Service Documentaries. Yes, so anyway, the, the, uh, there were a couple of issues about this documentary, uh, not least some mm. of the people taking part in it, as we're going to see in a second. Uh, but I began, uh, at least when you uh, informed me about this, I decided really the BBC needed to answer a couple of questions. So I sent them this email, which basically said, I'd like to get a statement uh, from the BBC about the apparent closure of BBC Arabic office in Damascus, which I understand has happened on the instructions of the Syrian government in the last few days. Could you also comment on the apparent connection between the closure and the release of the BBC's World Service documentary on Captagon? Finally, I'd like to get a comment from the BBC about why the BBC failed in the Captagon documentary to clearly identify HTS as an alternative name for the terrorist organization Al-Qaeda and the fact that HTS is prescribed under the Terrorism Act 2000. And the reason we were asking that question is because uh, a number of people taking part in that documentary, well, they seem to be uh, members of HTS. No, they are definitely uh, members of HTS. We've identified them. We've identified the groups that the BBC were focusing on in the documentary. And we actually uh, sent a sort of uh, a, a, a edited version or um, a, a longer version of the complaint that you sent uh, originally, Mike, to uh, Tim Davey, who's the general director of the BBC, former marketing with Procter & Gamble, I'm sure that has nothing to do with BBC's reporting on COVID. And Tim Orford, executive editor of BBC Arabic Service, head of programs and documentaries, who is ultimately responsible for this documentary. And so we changed slightly the final paragraph uh, to uh, asking if we could get a comment from the BBC, please, about why a BBC documentary failed to inform their audience that the organization interviewed in Idlib in Syria are in reality the intelligence arm of Hayat Tari al-Sham, HTS, a UK and US prescribed uh, terrorist organization, formerly Jabhat al-Nusra, because in fact, uh, HTS uh, sort of split from Al-Qaeda when uh, Abu Muhammad Jalani uh, basically formed an alliance of various terrorist armed groups in Idlib to, to basically become uh, the controlling element in the northwest of Syria. Uh, and that the specific individuals interviewed are responsible for war crimes in Syria, including the murder of children in Idlib. To now, I don't believe we have any response from the BBC, Mike. Uh, complete and utter silence. Absolutely nothing from anybody <laughs> in response to this. Uh, and uh, that right. was expected, but we had to give them the opportunity to comment on it. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think now we've got uh, just a section of the documentary. I recommend that everybody watch the documentary and form their own opinion. But I just wanted to show this section. You can cut it a bit shorter. I, as long as we get um, the, the guy who's sitting in a chair with a covered face, that's all I need. And, and the beginning of the report, Mike. It's not only Syria's neighbors who feel targeted. This is Idlib province in northwest Syria. It's one of the lost places still held by opponents of Assad's government. مصادر هاي المخدرات كله من منطقة سيطرة النظام وعم تتوزع بشكل طبيعي حسب سيطرة الفرقة الرابعة. ما في مهرب موجود أو شغال أو كذا إلا ما يكون له علاقات سلطوية. غالب التهريب يغلب على الطابع المدني. ليش؟ لأنه المهربين الأساسيين ما هم اللي بينقلوا المال. إما بيستخدموا أشخاص ضعاف نفوس مشان المال أو يستخدموا الأطفال أو النساء. At the border crossing, trucks enter Idlib from elsewhere in Syria. Any of them could be carrying a secret cargo. One lorry was recently stopped with hundreds of thousands of captagon pills. وردتنا معلومات من مكاتب الرصد الاستخباراتية عن وجود شحنة مخدرات مخبأة داخل سيارة شاحنة نوع برات قادمة من مناطق سيطرة النظام المجرم وبالتحديد من بلدة نبل الواقعة شمال غرب مدينة حلب. They show us how the. Thank you, Mike. So um, first of all, let's have a look at uh, this is a screenshot from the documentary showing the general administration of border guards. Note that it's written in English and in Arabic, as it always is, of course, with the White Helmet organization also. But uh, who are the border security department, which this is basically uh, what this uh, organization is? They are headed by Abu Ahmed. Hudud means borders, hence uh, he's heading up the, the border brigade uh, of HTS, which is effectively Al-Qaeda, or at least uh, has the same ideology. And his mission, or his nickname, uh, was received when he was working with ISIS while in Hasaka before he pledged allegiance to Al-Jalani uh, and Al-Qaeda, and he is directly affiliated to Jalani and represents him uh, on many occasions. This guy now, uh, the producer of the documentary, doesn't actually name him in the documentary. She, she just presents his evidence with his face hidden. And pretty much all of the testimony in the film, the faces are hidden, the voices are muffled. But this is actually Hakim al-Dairi, or Dia al-Din al-Omar, as he's known. He's the spokesman for General Security Agency, which is effectively the intelligence service of HDS run by Abu Maria al-Khafani, who's an Iraqi, very close to al-Jalani. 
Uh, and this shows the link between HTS and the CIA, MI6, and other international intelligence agencies in Idlib. Very important that uh, al Dari in 2018, when he was in the northern countryside of Idlib in, in October 2018, he led an assault in Kafrahala, uh, fired an RPG missile at a residential home, killing Reem Asaf, that you can see, um, I, I've slightly hidden her face in this tweet, from October the 5th, 2018, the child Reem Asaf, three years old, was killed, and her older brother, Mohammed, six years, was seriously injured, and other family members were seriously injured in this attack that was led by al-Dairi, who the BBC interviewed. And of course, they didn't make clear that this is who he is. They called the group themselves the opponents of Assad. Can we just go back one slide, Mike? Sorry. Um, now, instead of being held accountable by Jelani, he was actually promoted to security official in Tramada district in Idlib, and then an official in the economic authority in HTS, and a spokesman for the general security agency. His brother was governor in Raqqa during the ISIS occupation, and according to civilian testimony, he has carried out uh, campaigns of assassinations, explosions, kidnapping, torture, blackmail, and extortion. And he smuggled explosive detonations, detonators to the SDF militia in the northeast. He has also carried out assassinations uh, of rival factions, particularly Haras al-Din, which have been targeted by U.S. drones. And this shows, again, the close collaboration between HTS and the CIA to expand Jolani HTS influence and control of Idlib. But none of this, none of this context is mentioned by the BBC. And as this tweet by Michael Hobbs mentions in May 2014, Raqqa, the same ISIS is now in Idlib joining forces with HTS, as I said, the alliance formed by Jelani. So moving on, Mike. So we mentioned that Syria has cancelled the BBC media accreditation. Um, and I know for sure that it was as a result of this documentary by BBC World Service. Um, but let's look at what the BBC says in response. It said it provided impartial, independent journalism, and we speak to people across the political spectrum to establish the facts. I'm not aware that they spoke to anybody in the Syrian government-protected uh, areas, and they certainly didn't speak to political factions. They are terrorist factions. So who made this documentary? CIP senior fellow Russia Kandil. Uh, obviously a correspondent for BBC Arabic, and she had accreditation with BBC Arabic in Syria. That is now cancelled. Centre for International Policy is a Washington uh, Pentagon-linked uh, think tank uh, providing um, information to, which, which influences U.S. Uh, foreign policy. It receives funding from, among others, Open Society, George Soros and the Ford Foundation, etc. Moving on, Mike. Um, and from this, you can see that she didn't enter uh, Idlib, as always, uh, via the Syrian uh, protected areas. And until now, I don't know whether she had received a visa to actually film in Aleppo and in Tawada. I suspect not, because she doesn't actually appear on film uh, during those sections of the documentary. But to enter Idlib, she would have come in illegally, of course, through Turkey with an escort from 
al-Qaeda that are in control of Idlib. So moving on again, this documentary was basically made in collaboration uh, with three other organizations. The first being, um, I've just forgotten what OCCRP stands for. It's Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Um, and let's have a look at their backers, uh, Mike, uh, who supports their work. Well, guess who? Um, so you have Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs of France, the United Kingdom Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the US Agency for International Development, USAID, effectively CIA, the US Department of State, the National Endowment for Democracy, yet again, effectively CIA, and moving on, a number of foundations. Now, Mike, we have asked the OCCRP also for comment, and we've heard nothing back. We've also asked them to let us know how the UK Foreign Office is supporting them, whether it's through direct funding. There are no uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act filings uh, showing any funding um, for OCCRP. So we are currently investigating whether the Foreign Office is indeed funding them. And just a quick look at some, some of the uh, elements on the website of this organization, for example, explore the global assets of Russia's oligarchs and enablers, um, many of them connected, according to them, to Magnitsky uh, and to Navalny, enough that they're clearly uh, supporting NATO narratives uh, as regards uh, Russia. And uh, the other two uh, elements uh, in the production of this documentary are a media company called Daraj, which is Saudi Arabia funded. Uh, in Dara in Syria, or I'm sure they're not actually in Dara, but uh, that's basically where it's supposed to be uh, hailing from. And Suweda 24, uh, backed by Qatar. So again, Saudi money and Qatari money behind the making of this documentary. And moving on again, Mike. So let's see why this documentary was made and point out the fact that, of course, it's working in lockstep with UK-US attempts to further clamp down uh, and punish the Syrian people for resisting the imperialist project that has been ongoing since 2011. So this was an announcement from the foreign... Can you go back a sec, Mike? Sorry, yeah. Um, tackling the illicit drug trade, fueling Assad's war machine, the UK and US have imposed sanctions, more sanctions, on those responsible for the illicit capital trade which independent experts, experts estimate could be worth up to 57 billion. Sorry, moving on now. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at the claims that are being made by Lord Ahmed and the uh, FDO. Um, so they state, as you said, Capricorn is a highly addictive amphetamine. Uh, and 80% uh, of the world's supply they are claiming is produced in Syria. I've had a quick look at a number of very professional reports on Captagon uh, production globally, and they do not agree with this claim. Then they go on to say that the Syrian regime is closely involved in the trade. Again, I have multiple archived reports on the Syrian government's battle against the drug trade, and I have personal experience of speaking to survivors of terrorist attacks who have told me uh, very clearly that the terrorists were taking the Captagon drug from 2011 onwards, and we're being supplied with the drug from uh, Saudi Arabia. So then it goes on to say trade in the drug is a financial lifeline for the Assad regime. It's worth approximately three times, et cetera, et cetera. 
it apparently uh, enriches Assad's inner circle militias and warlords at the expense of the Syrian people who continue to face crippling poverty and repression at the hands of the regime, nothing to do with the sanctions that the British government is imposing. He then goes on to say the Assad regime is using the profits from the Captagon trade to continue their campaign of terror on the Syrian people, while the BBC covers up for the fact that the UK is supporting and sponsoring terrorism in the northwest of Syria. And the UK and US will continue to hold the regime to account for brutally repressing the Syrian people and fueling instability across the Middle East. I don't think I need to comment on that. But what it seems to me quite clearly, Mike, is that the BBC here has been tasked with supporting the criminal actions of the UK and US to impose yet further sanctions on both individuals in Syria and to maintain the economic brutality against the Syrian people. Hence, now we have absolutely no electricity in Syria because the US is occupying oil fields, but also because of sanctions. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Now, of course, uh, it's not the first time that the BBC has been caught uh, uh, converting with, converting with uh, terrorists. If we think back to saving Syria's children and some of the, the background uh, footage that came out around that, uh, they were busy doing that as well. But uh, while we've got this diversion of Hugh Edwards going on at the moment, uh, of course, we've had no response out of the BBC about this. They do have some significant questions to answer here. Absolutely. Well, just the framing of this story that they, they leave out the fact that it's terrorist occupied Idlib. It's a kind of an important contextual point to the story, isn't it? But they've made them look official. They've got little dog sniffer, um, uh, drug sniffing dogs, you know, so they've all been trained for the cameras. It all looks very sort of official, but most people don't realize what Idlib actually is in Syria. Yes. So, and they've whitewashed it in this uh, this BBC program. Indeed. Well, thanks very much to the v Vanessa for that. Now she is uh, obviously short of electricity, so hopefully she will be back uh, later on for extra. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I would like to encourage everybody that's watching this, that watched Vanessa's report there, to perhaps uh, ask Mariana Spring, since she's so keen to fact check things and make sure that everything's correct. Ask Mariana Spring what uh, what BBC. Uh, verify can discover about uh, the this particular report uh, and uh, well maybe they might have something to say about it mm. uh, let's move on to uh, further fallout from the uh, the NATO summit I mean we've got to bring this image on screen because uh, uh, Rishi Sunak was very keen for everybody to see that on his Twitter feed this morning or at least 10 Downing Street was it's it's a loving picture it's so touching it's, it's a really tender moment uh, uh, so caused, uh, it's beautiful. Yes. So for those uh, only listening and not watching, uh, Rishi and uh, uh, Mr. Zelensky are giving themselves a good hug there. Uh, it's very pleasant. But you might be giving them financial advice. You might be whispering in uh, Zelensky's here about investment opportunities overseas. Who knows? Could be. But uh, it wasn't all uh, smelling of roses uh, at the NATO summit. Not at all, Mike. Not at all. We're going to call this uh, a fear and loathing in Vilnius. And there was quite a bit of that this year. So remember before the summit, you remember Jan Stoltenberg? NATO has never been more united, right? When you hear politicians say this, you know that they've never been more trouble disunited. Yeah. Uh, so Zelensky was basically accused of not being grateful for the generosity of his Western uh, sponsors here. Here he is with his number one sugar daddy, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and so Zelensky had a, a Twitter tirade, an angry tweet, accusing this of being absurd. They haven't given him fast track membership to NATO, like he was, ex he was expecting some big announcement. It didn't arrive. 
Um, so, and this was this this sort of um, pattern of disappointment, Mike. This was a general theme uh, for for Ukraine. So they've given them the what do they call it? The NATO Council. What was it? The, yeah, the NATO Council pathway, right? Which is a pathway to nowhere. They say when when the war's over, then we'll we'll get you back on track. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, NATO members are saying. Uh, we want to keep the war going. No peace negotiations. So uh, he's caught in his own sort of trap. Uh, but, uh, well, it, there were signs that of a bit of impatience on the Western side. So we had this uh, quote. Uh, this was apparently said uh, sort of to the sidelines to journalists by Ben Wallace. The UK is not an Amazon-style weapons delivery service for Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, because he was being... Uh, uh, asked about this by these journalists, uh, by uh, asked about Zelensky's uh, being upset. Uh, but we have a tweet here uh, from Che Bose. Che Bose, Irish journalist. He uh, also reports for RT. And this is one of those iconic images there. You've probably seen the, the dejected, uh, you know, the family photo. And Zelensky's there, and his, I call him Action Man, uh, or the Little Green Man. They're starting to call him the Little Green Man now. Uh, so Shea Bose, uh, Irish journalist, saying once, he's talking about Biden and Zelensky, one's banned all opposition, he's talking about uh, Zelensky, the other's trying to jail his, that's Biden. One's canceled elections, that's Zelensky, uh, the other pays him billions, that's Biden. One's corrupt act, a corrupt actor playing the president, I don't know which one, I think that's Zelensky. <laughs> and the other reads instructions from cue cards and is obviously demented, that's Biden. These are the guardians of freedom. Uh, at Vilnius here. So Biden, you can see, doing his typical turning, shaking hands to a, wrong person. with a ghost, yes. probably. And Zelensky's off there as a prop off to the side. I mean, the green outfit is getting ridiculous. Mike, when is he going to show up dressed like a head of state and not like Manuel Noriega? Uh -huh. And this is the problem with the whole Zelensky shtick is just getting a little bit long in the tooth. It's been 18 months. Buy a suit get a tie, do something, but the green outfit or the rotating green outfits, it's kind of getting old. The whole shtick's getting old. Uh, which brings us on to France. Well, this was a big announcement that Macron made in Vilnius here, that France was, uh, note the date, Mike, July 11th. France was going to supply, they're going to supply their long-range scalp cruise missiles to the Ukraine. Now, that was a big, that, now Russia's obviously reading this as an escalation, okay? So uh, scout missiles, people don't know much about them. What are they? Well, they're actually the same as the Storm Shadow missiles. It's the same uh, manufacturer, in fact, here. So here's Macron making this big announcement a couple of days ago, but it turns out that uh, the French missiles are already in Ukraine. They're already in Ukraine. So a little bit of a naughty move there. Uh, by Macron, and they've uh, arguably been in Ukraine quite a long time. In fact, they've been in Ukraine since Ben Wallace announced that they'll be sending storm shadow missiles uh, to the Ukrainians. Why? Because the scout missile and the storm shadow are the same. It's the same exact product. Uh, so here you can see this is the scalp stroke storm shadow missile, uh, which is manufactured by MBDA. Uh, they're basically a French manufacturer. It's a joint venture between uh, BAE Systems uh, and Airbus and Leonardo as a sort of junior partner there. So let's take a look at this. And um, here is the, here's the problem, Mike. Uh, here's the problem. Uh, these missiles are now being shot down and intercepted, uh, and they're being studied by the Russians here. So this was in uh, Berdyansk. This is near uh, Mariupol, down sort of uh, in, in that part of the Donbass. Um, so this is one of those storm shadow missiles here, uh, apparently, but we'll take a closer look 
at this. This is Ukraine weapons tracker. The Russian anti-aircraft shot this down. MBDA France. That's the missile inside of the casing, okay? So you can see the casings all look the same. It's that big gray body. So this is a French missile. This was shot down. This was a few days ago. So they're already sort of intercepting these Russian anti-aircraft here. And let's just take a look at this. Even more interesting is this. Um, this was, uh, I believe, July 8th. You can see this was actually uh, recovered uh, before the date on this, by the way. It was tweeted later. So Russian officials have successfully recovered a fully intact Storm Shadow missile. The same thing as a scalp. Uh, it's the same exact product here, cruise missile. Um, and so now they're inspecting the guidance systems and probably doing some work on these, Mike, on the technical side. So let's just take a look here. We got a little bit of a blow up. So this is them unloading. You can see um, there is the body uh, of the missile there. These are uh, Russian military uh, technicians uh, taking the pieces of this. And they're going to be transporting this back to the Russian MOD to study all the guidance systems in order to align their electronic warfare. So that might be a slight problem, maybe. Yes, indeed. For the British and the French. So, yeah, that's what's going on there. So let's just take a look. MBDA, there they are. Uh, I believe the manufacturing is in uh, Bourges in France. And I believe the avionics and the engineering is in Stevenage, Mike, uh, for this particular uh, company here. Again, a joint venture with BA Systems, Airbus, uh, and Leonardo. So yes. it's the same, the same exact uh, missile. Yes. Okay. So uh, coming back to the uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, to the NATO summit itself, of course, uh, Rishi Sunak very keen to say, tweet out afterwards, uh, NATO is where Ukraine belongs. Uh, because, of course, as you say, uh, Zelensky very upset that uh, he didn't get what he wanted there, which was NATO membership. So they they threw the dog a bone, or we should say a consolation prize, and that was uh, the G7 uh, declaration uh, for support on Ukraine. Um, and uh, so the leaders reaffirmed their unwavering commitment to the strategic objective uh, of a free, independent, democratic and sovereign Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, that's all very exciting. So where does that take us? Well, it takes us to Biden approving mobilization of reserves uh, in, because, of course, we've got to send the message to Ukraine that we're still supporting them. Yeah, so the G7 announcement, Mike, that's public relations, as you said. That's all that is. That was just to reassure the European partners and Ukraine. They haven't completely left them in the lurch, even though support for Ukraine and for this proxy war is wavering and rapidly in Europe and also in the United States. So here's another PR move. Biden approving the mobilization gets a lot of big press out of this. It's a big announcement. CNN's running it. But what are we looking at in terms of the details? Well, look in there. 3,000 personnel augmenting the armed forces in support of Operation Atlantic Resolve. So, I mean, on the scale of the U.S. military, that's nothing. On the scale of the Russian military, it's nothing. Right. Uh, if you consider the mobilization right now, Russia uh, have 750,000. They're going to be up to 1.2 million. Uh, they want to be by the fall. Mm. Putin said he wants to go up to 1.5 in 2024. Mm. Um, so they're talking about 3,000 troops. What is this? This is a desperate PR announcement. That's, all, that's the only thing I can say that we, we can take from this, Mike. So those are two back-to-back kind of little consolation announcements. This is a disaster. Like yes. this this NATO summit has been an unmitigated disaster, but we got more on well, this. Well, we got more. So we're going to apologize straight now for uh, putting Rishi Sunak on screen. Uh, but uh, speaking of PR disasters, let's have a look at this. 
Together with our G7 partners, we have agreed to provide the long-term bilateral security commitments that Ukraine needs. These commitments mark a new high point in international support for Ukraine. And I want to be clear, they are not a substitute for NATO membership. The summit communique echoes the UK's long-held position that Ukraine's future is in NATO. And finally, I'd like to say a word about the UK's role here. I was struck once again this week by just how valued our contribution is. The British people should know that, and they should be proud. We are the leading European contributor to NATO. We were one of the first to hit the 2% target, and now we're moving towards 2.5%. We spend more than 20 other NATO countries combined, but it's about much more than that. We're one of the only countries that contributes to every NATO mission with RAF jets patrolling the eastern flank, troops on the ground in Estonia and Poland as part of NATO's enhanced forward presence, and the Royal Navy, including our two aircraft carriers, providing around a quarter of NATO's maritime capability. So Patrick, you'll have noticed how he just lied with a straight face there. Two aircraft carriers, we do not have two aircraft carriers. We have one aircraft carrier, plus another aircraft carrier that's in dry dock in the Firth of Forth, and they're currently butchering that aircraft carrier to get spare parts for the first aircraft carrier. So we do not have two aircraft carriers. We've got one and a half at best. So anyway, but aside from that, the point here is two and a half percent of GDP. Well, as you just said while he was saying that, two and a half percent of a shrinking GDP means nothing. And, and adjusted for inflation. But this is PR again. So let's just look at what the Russian response was to this uh, PR, because this is from the uh, UK, the embassy in the UK, the Russian embassy in the UK. So they're saying, uh, we took note of recent statements by UK leadership where London urges allies to steadily increase their military spending, adapt NATO's military planning and structure, uh, build up rapid response capabilities across every domain, stresses the importance of adequate defense industry management to ensure the possibility of significantly ramping up military production, uh, boasts its own notorious uh, obligation to provide long-term military support to Kiev regime. Coupled with the policy of dragging out the Ukrainian conflict, it's clear that the UK is in fact openly calling for the militarization of the European continent, a regional arms race, and setting the stage for long-term Russia-West confrontation with serious risk of escalation. That's their position on it, uh, and uh, I think that's quite re reasonable. That's, that should be a point of concern as well, diplomatically, and it goes to show you that uh, uh, you know, NATO is really the United States and Britain, uh, and everybody else is, is a junior partner along for the way. I'm just gonna say quickly right before we go on, watching Rishi Sunak as a statesman, looking for, we're looking for that those qualities, right? Mm. I mean, I think we, we sold Theresa May really short She's like three times the statesman as Rishi Sunak. Bring back strong and stable uh, Theresa May. She was like Thatcher compared to, to this guy. I mean, it's pretty shocking. Well, it is shocking how far uh, down the plug hole we've already fallen. But anyway, uh, in the meantime, uh, Scott Ritter has had some comments on this, on Britain's role specifically. He has. Uh, Scott Ritter has produced a stunning investigative series. I have to say... Uh, very rarely do you see pieces of media like this, Mike. Um, uh, Ukraine on Fire is a good example of a real seminal piece. Scott Ritter's got this uh, investigative series. Part one was released this week. The title is Agent Zelensky. So we've, we've, we featured the first uh, installment up at 21st Century Wired. 
youtube.com. YouTube's put an uh, 18 and over block on his embed on his Substack, um, but in terms of uh, Rumble and so forth, we embedded the Rumble video here. Uh, Scott Witter Extra is on Rumble if you can watch it there as well. This Mike is a great piece of journalism. I have to take my hat off to Scott Ritter. This is hugely impactful. Now, he really focuses on the role of British intelligence, specifically in episode one. We're only giving you a few short clips. This first episode is unbelievable. I'm rarely floored by some uh, journalistic work like this. This is like almost, I mean, very impactful. Let's just put it that way. Let's watch this, this first part of the clip. And all of this is part of the payment for Zelensky's hard work as an agent serving America and the British crown. We had a meeting at the MI6 office. Unfortunately, I can't disclose all the information. It's a matter of state affairs. Autumn 2020. Ukrainian media accidentally, or maybe not, learned about Zelensky's secret meeting with Richard Moore, the head of MI6. Not just anywhere, but at the headquarters of British Intelligence Service. According to the president, the meeting was about protecting Ukraine's sovereignty. As a Secret Service agent, I'd like to tell you that there are special norms of decency and protocol. When a president of a sovereign country is on a foreign territory, he should meet with his counterpart. The only exception is if the head of intelligence himself comes to Ukraine to meet with Zelensky. Coming down to the lowest level, to the head of the intelligence agency, is not a simple admission of guilt. At that time, the person becomes an actual professional agent. It is clear. One handler always works with one agent. In the case of Zelensky, the head of MI6, Richard Moore, became his direct handler. That's quite an allegation. That is a big allegation. Okay. And um, he backs it up with receipts. Okay, and this is just part one. Now, the other thing he's pointed out was Zelensky's security detail. And Scott Ritter is saying they're British. His close security protection, much like the Saudi royal family, they're British special forces. Um, so let's watch this, this next part. He was surrounded by British security. This was in the spring of 2022, in the midst of war in Bucha. Look at these scenes. Do you see a patch on the sleeve of one of the guys near Zelensky? The Ukrainian flag is upside down. A local would have been shot on the spot for this. But this guy is okay. Do you know why? Because he has the right to. He is a foreigner, like everyone else around Zelensky. In fact, judging by the pronunciation, they're British. As we can see, Zelensky's security team consists of Brits. Quite marvelous because we have the so-called Ninth Administration, the President's security, with 1,800 professional military guys, special forces. I don't know what to say to that. If it's true, it is, uh, well, the British government has some questions to answer. What was more shocking was what happened right before that clip, which we didn't show, and I just say, to everybody, go watch the full episode right. on that. Now, the last part was his visit to the Pope, Zelensky's visit to the Pope. Now, everybody saw the uh, the, the 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 holy uh, the holy mother uh, kind of uh, illuminated manuscript type painting with the black blacked out Jesus, right. which is satanic. Okay, that and that got a free pass in the mainstream media, which is what Zelensky presented to the Pope. Okay, I mean that's shocking. Of Ritter comments on that. 
But what was interesting, who is the head of uh, foreign affairs for the Holy See? Is British. So Scott Ritter uh, says that uh, this is likely a British, another British agent handling Zelensky in this particular instance. Go ahead and roll this. Essential communication of Zelensky took place not in the Pope's office, but in the next room without the involvement of Pope Francis, but with the participation of the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Holy See, Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher, a native Brit whose cardinals are conducting powerful propaganda in Ukraine. The Ukrainian president spoke with Gallagher for almost an hour and a half. But the main detail is that the head of MI6, Richard Moore, was also present at the meeting in the Vatican. Maybe this fact explains the record-breaking motorcade of the leader of independent Ukraine, over 20 cars. To be sure that that guy do not make a trick to make a, suddenly make a peace with Vladimir Putin, they take hostages, his kids and a wife in a Great Britain. This is another layer of security for masters of puppets. How so the implication there was that Zelensky couldn't freelance and maybe make some peace type overture statement with directly to the Pope. They're very careful mm. not to allow for those types of opportunities. And the uh, Igor Lepotnik, who's the film director, is also Ukraine on fire with Oliver Stone. He's made quite a few other great films right. on this. He's saying that Zelensky's wife, kids in London as collateral at the same time he's visiting the Pope. That's the implication. This is he heavy implications, but it's a quite an extraordinary scene when you look at what, what they're showing here. Yes. I mean, there's some explaining to do there. So Agent Zelensky, is, is, is he being handled by the British and the Americans? I mean, really yeah. micromanaged. Yes. That's, yeah. that's what they're showing here. Listen, this is a really stunning piece of film. And this is just episode one. There's more coming. So it's uh, very revealing. Okay, we'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, but in the meantime, everybody can watch that one. Now, in the, in the meantime, Patrick, uh, let's bring this on screen. Now, it's in Ukrainian, so we'll need to uh, translate this for you. So the headline on this is Hate Speech Digest of Russian Propagandists. Uh, and this is on the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council Disinformation Center website. Uh, and uh, so they have uh, released several slides uh, talking about uh, Russian dis propagandists, disinformation uh, that's been published dur during the period 23rd of June to the 4th of July, 2023. Um, so let's just have a look at a couple of these slides. So this is the kind of format of them. So at the top, we have uh, a quote from... Uh, well, it's a quotation from the Russian broadcast, public broadcasting's premier talking head, uh, Vladimir uh, Solovyov. Uh, thanks to Alex for translating some of this, by the way. Uh, and uh, so that's at the top. We've got a quote from him. Then underneath, we've got the main targets of the Russian uh, propaganda quote, as they're describing it. And then beneath that, we've got four bullet points, uh, which is the Ukrainian translation of what the uh, Russian quote is saying. And beneath that, we have the amplifiers of the Russian narratives, uh, according to the Ukrainians. And uh, well, on this particular graphic, uh, Patrick, it seems to be you and Kim.com that they're focusing on. So let's look at the next one. Uh, and you can see that it's Zelensky is on the receiving end of the uh, what they're describing as disinformation in this case. And in this case, it's you and who else? 
This is Shea Bose, is an Irish journalist uh, who we've already mentioned lives and works in Moscow. And yes, he reports with RT. Okay, and yeah. then this one uh, we've got you and Kim.com again, and so this one is saying the quotation at the top uh, that is from uh, Solovyov is saying uh, that the West is out to destroy all Slavs, not just Ukrainians. Uh, that uh, Ukrainians have been persuaded to destroy their country uh, from the inside uh, and that there be a role for the, for the Ukrainians that are involved in that afterwards, uh, whereas uh, actually the West only wants them to die in the war and so on. And then the three icons, uh, icons beneath, of course, are the Ukrainian flag and then we've got the EU flag and then we've got the NATO flag. And the, the bullet points are that the quote is saying effectively that Ukraine is a US NATO puppet, uh, that the war in Ukraine is a profitable affair, uh, and that the West is using Ukraine to achieve its own aims. Uh, and of course- All got, true. Uh, well, we've, we've got the quotes at the bottom. And uh, well, the quote that they've bought at the bottom there from you, uh, Patrick, seems to be uh, this one uh, that you quoted on, uh, or at least you wrote on Twitter uh, on the 8th of July. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they translate this accurately. But I was riffing off of Ursula van der Leyen and the, uh, the no, so they're accusing me of amplifying Russian talking points. I have no idea who Mr. Solotinov is. I, I, I suppose he's with one of the major Russian mainstream broadcasters. That's right. That's I, it, yeah. I don't follow his work and I don't read Russian. I have my own ideas. So I saw this uh, tweet by Ursula van der Leyen on July 8th. And I thought, that's, that's a bit hypocritical. Let me pastiche that. Let me do some satire and a little bit of, uh, you know, incisive uh, messaging here. So I'm saying 500, she's saying 500 days of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, 500 days of brave Ukrainian resistance, 500 days of steadfast European support for Ukraine. We will stand with Ukraine as long as it takes. So that's Ursula von der Leyen's EU party line. I'm saying 500 days of bankrupting and deindustrialization of Europe, 500 days of a losing proxy war against Russia, a complete failure, 500 days of record profits for the Western military industrial complex, 500 days and 250,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers, all for the US, EU and NATO's vanity. So, you know, and uh, Alex's translation of the Ukrainian is pretty close to that. It's so, pretty so accurate. They, they did. They did uh... so, so the first three of my bullet points, you could say are factual, and they are. The second one is uh, also, the fourth one's also factual. I've added my opinion. I believe this is about the, the geopolitical vanity of a, a dying empire. Am I entitled to my opinion? So if you have any opinions that veer from the NATO party line, you are amplifying automatically, ergo, according to the Ukrainian uh, ministry there, you're amplifying Russian disinformation. Yes. And so therefore you're a Russian propagandist. That's right. Even though I'm not in contact with any of these uh, Russians. Uh, so I, I have my own thoughts and ideas. I tweet too much, Mike. I have too many tweets per day. I probably tweet 50 times a day in terms of retweets and tweets. So there's a lot of stuff on my Twitter feed. They've cherry picked this and they say that somehow this is Russian disinformation. These exact uh, opinions that I have are identical to the opinions of hundreds of other journalists and pundits uh, on the internet. So it's completely disingenuous uh, for them to cherry pick this, but the, it's an old trope. It's an old trope. They're trying to say, oh, this is a plot going on here. Kim.com is another good example. He, he's completely 100% um, on social media, always waxing, always commenting every single day. He's on Twitter spaces. He's doing his own sort of uh, interviews and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, is he, is he coordinating with the Russians? I, 
I highly doubt it. Yeah, I Don't highly so. doubt it. So that's a, that's an amazing thing. So you know, at the end of the day, Mike, it's a, if you're going to say it's propaganda, it's really American propaganda, uh, because I grew up watching the mainstream media. I learned all of my communication and information tricks from the the U.S. and international corporate mainstream media. So that's my training school. Um, so all I've done is twist it and turn it back at them. That's all. Okay, so let's uh, bring Che Bose back on screen again. Well, we're just going to say that was the tweet we showed earlier uh, when we read in the uh, previous segment there. So why is this interesting, Mike? Why is this important too? Well, it just so happens as the Ukrainian uh, intelligence and whatever, I'm not sure what department that was in Ukraine, but it was the Ministry of, of Intelligence and Information or something like that, maybe. Well, anyway, while they're doing that, Okay, this story comes up just a couple of days ago in the United States. The FBI in the U.S. facilitated social media takedown requests made by Ukrainian spy agency SBU. Let's take a look at this. They colluded with Ukrainian intelligence to pressure social media companies, all the ones we know and love, Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, into taking down accounts accused of, quote, spreading Russian Disinformation. Sound familiar? Sure. Some of which belong to Americans. The House Committee says, I will be asking for this list myself. Uh, and so here is the report here uh, from this congressional uh, review. And let's take a look at how the system works. Here's how it works. We're calling this the FBI SBU doxing and censorship operation against American citizens. So it starts off here and they're saying they infiltrate, uh, according to this, uh, FSB, uh, SBU, takedown request. So the Americans are somehow try trying to put the Russians in the frame here for some reason. But anyway, uh, it's Ukrainian intelligence telling the FBI, here's the blacklists, the FBI going to Facebook, Instagram, Google, and social media and asking them to take these accounts down mm -hmm. or take these tweets down. So this is an extension really of the Twitter files here. And it's even more shocking. The report is based on documents subpoenaed from Meta itself, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, uh, and also Google and YouTube here. And what do they show? It alleges the FBI violated the First Amendment rights of Americans and undermined our national security. They tried to spin it as with a Russian connection as well, which Americans will always do. They'll try to add China and Russia into everything. But here's the facts. As part of the effort, the Ukrainian intelligence, SBU, transmitted lists of social media accounts to the FBI that it wanted to be banned, and the Bureau, in turn, routinely relayed these lists to the relevant social media platforms. So that expose on me and Kim.com, mm. that would probably reflect these types of blacklists that are coming from Kiev and into the Silicon Valley here. Look at this. this list, listen to this. This shows you what a clown show this really is, Mike. The State Department's own Russian language Instagram account, USA uh, Poruski, uh, was one of the uh, one of the authentic American accounts flagged for removal in a list composed by the SBU and transmitted to big tech companies by the FBI. So Fantastic. The, so the FBI don't even know that this was an, a State Department account. This is what what clown world really and truly looks like. Mm. These people don't know what they're doing. And let's point out what we showed on this program just a few weeks ago, Mike. Uh, so who's in charge of trust and safety at Facebook? And Meta, well, it's none other than former CIA agent Aaron Berman. And Facebook and Meta are crawling with spooks. Yeah. CIA agents, DHS, NSA, 
FBI, tons and tons of them, all working in community safety, censorship. All of these roles are staffed by intelligence. So they're getting primed from Ukraine and, and with instructions of who to ban. So what do we know about Google on this? We don't know anything yet. This hasn't come up. What's going on? So why can't we have videos on YouTube? Uh, is, this, is this the reason? It could be. Good question. It would be good to know. Outrageous. Okay, we just want to end this segment then just very briefly with this. Uh, Reuters reporting today that Ukraine has now received uh, cluster munitions. Uh, but don't worry, Patrick, you don't have to worry because they're pledging limited use. They're only going to use them where they need to clear out Russians from certain areas. Uh, they're not going to be widespread use, so you don't need to worry at all about it. Uh, of course, you do need to worry because these things hang around for decades in some cases are still blowing uh, the feet and legs off children uh, in certain parts of the world uh, decades after their use. Uh, I just want to highlight the Russian attitude to this. This is Valentina Mifienko, uh, the Russian Federation Council chairwoman. The collective West and NATO aren't at all interested in resolving the conflict peacefully. On the contrary, they're interested in prolonging it and escalating the conflict, increasing weapon supplies to Ukraine are yet more proof of that. Uh, she went on to say, and now a never before seen and criminal decision to provide Ukraine with cluster munitions has been made. If it happens, and it now has happened, I believe that would be a war crime. I think that's a fair enough comment. Now, let's uh, quickly move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and you can help us out there. Very much needed and appreciated. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, please do share uh, anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. And we just want to highlight a couple of things that you could share. One is uh, uh, an interview with Kim Isherwood on queer theory, the attack on uh, the minds of our children. Uh, and also on Thursday, yesterday, we put out this, uh, an inquest denied, Matt Campbell demands 9-11 answers. Uh, he is now looking for a judicial review on, uh, in order to bring about a further inquiry into the death of his brother in the North Tower uh, on September 11th. Uh, and uh, we're happy to support that. And I would encourage everybody else to support it as well. And just a quick comment, Mike, on the cluster bombs, uh, the previous story. I did some work on this issue when I was in Lebanon uh, many years ago. And there are literally millions of uh, locations or where cluster bombs were dropped, bomblets, by the Israelis in South Lebanon. Mm. The Israeli, the IDF will not share this, the, uh, the, the battlefield maps that shows where they've all been dropped. But there are a number of these uh, no-go sites in southern Lebanon. Uh, children have been killed. They look like toys as well, some of the unexploded bomblets. Um, so hugely dangerous. They continue to be a problem 10, 15, 20 years after the fighting has ended. Yes. So that's the danger that's involved here when you're talking about cluster munitions. That's and them talking about these as wonder weapons, like this is going to turn the tide and help the Ukrainians in their counteroffensive. This is just so crass and craven. What's the, the language and the rhetoric that's coming out of the West now, it is just really incredible. Despicable. It yes. is, it is. Uh, now let's come back onto the issue of pro propaganda, uh, Patrick. And uh, well, Voice of America here is very pleased that influencers, or are they very pleased that influencers are overtaking journalists as a news source? No, this is a, well, this is a report by the Reuters Institute um, in the right. UK, okay. in Oxford actually. Um, so what they found, it's a pretty extensive study here. Let's take a look at this. 55% of TikTok Snapchat users and 52% of Instagram users get their news from quote personalities or influencers compared to 33 to 42% who get it from the mainstream media journalists on these same platforms, which are popular among the youth 
here. So let's look at the details. So while mainstream journalists often lead conversations around the news on Twitter and Facebook, they struggle to get attention on these other pro, uh, platforms like Instagram, Snap, Snapchat, and TikTok. And it's a very good report, Mike. It's very detailed here. I think they, they looked at uh, 90 94,000 people um, were, were counted in this in, in over 46 countries. So it's a very uh, thorough report. Facebook remains a leading source of news among all social media networks worldwide, but its influence is dropping with 28% saying they get the news from compared to 42% in 2016. So, um, sorry, going back there. So, um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So th this, this is not a new problem, okay? So what you're seeing now, this is the latest expression of uh, a problem that existed before social media. Before social media, people said they got their news from comedians like Jon Stewart on Comedy Central. And so we'll just go back to, to uh, sorry, to 2015 here. And you can see this is um, uh, a report by Forbes. And they're saying that Americans trust Jon Stewart more than Bloomberg. And here it is. So there's, of all the major networks, that's uh, The Daily Show by Jon Stewart, 16%. And that beats a lot of other big uh, mainstream outlets uh, there below that. So, but that was back in 2015. And if you look back, you see these same reports back into the late 90s. Okay, so I, I think this is just a reflection of an old uh, pattern where people are not going to mainstream media outlets. They're going to comedians. They're going to... Uh, influencers, spokesmodels, celebrities to get their take on the news. So, uh, but again, this should be something Mariana Spring at uh, BBC Verify should jump in head first and go through the data. Maybe there's some interesting insights here. I mean, it is the Reuters Institute after all. They've already done the heavy lifting for her. Well, So maybe she can get some co cool insights there about the spread of disinformation, maybe. Yes. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to this then. And uh, this is Invesco, and they have uh, released their latest uh, Global Sovereign Asset Management Study. Uh, this is quite interesting, Patrick, because they're talking about, or at least one of the sections they're talking about, uh, the gold holdings uh, by central banks. Uh, just, this is theme five. Golden opportunities, central banks seek stability amid currency challenges. So let's have a look and see what they're saying. Amid volatile yields, 2022 saw flight to gold, uh, questions around the US dollar's future as the world's uh, reserve currency and increased diversification of currency holdings. Okay, uh, but what did they go on to say? They said uh, gold spot price surpassed record levels of $2,000 per ounce three times in as many years, reflecting the uncertainty of the current macroeconomic environment. Uh, and then finally, they say in 2022, central banks made record gold purchases with net acquisitions of 1,136 tons. Uh, for, uh, sorry, marking a 12th consecutive year of a net increase in gold holdings. Now, that's uh, quite interesting, but here's uh, the other interesting bit. Uh, uh, perhaps there's no surprise, but most of the countries that were doing aside from China and Turkey, which were the two biggest countries doing this. And Russia, they're in their yes, top list. But uh, a lot of them were, were third world countries or developing countries as well, so-called third world countries. Uh, but uh, only 50% of uh, the central banks held their gold at their home locations uh, in 2020, but it's now 68%, right? And uh, so the question is why? Well, of course, we've seen 
central banks are stealing the gold from other countries, particularly US and UK central banks stealing gold from other countries. Like Venezuela. Right, so yeah. I'm going to come on to Venezuela. So, so the Bank of England's holdings of other central banks' gold has dropped by 12% since 2021. And that's quite a, surprisingly low, perhaps, per, particularly because of what they did with, uh, with Venezuela, because, of course, Venezuela then took them to court in an effort to try to get their, bank, uh, their gold back. And the court decided, no, they can't have it. Uh, so the Bank of England still holds on to Venezuelan gold, despite the fact it's not theirs. They stole it. Uh, but of course, uh, Russian gold has been seized at various times as well, uh, and sanctions, you know. So it's always risky for countries to hold their gold in other central banks. Um, and uh, so they're increasingly not doing that. But in the meantime, they are uh, heading for gold as quickly as they possibly can at the so, moment. So the, the increase in Ch China's gold reserves in Russia, it's orders of magnitude more than anything in any of the Western central banks. Yes. The, the arc on that is incredible. Why is that important? Because the BRICS, Mike, have announced um, their plans for a gold-backed uh, currency, something similar to the SDR, yes. a basket of currencies plus commodities. Now, that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good value proposition, Mike, because that's basically what the IMF is, the IMF and special drawing rights. It's a basket of currencies, mm -hmm. but with commodities as collateral. You're talking about Russia, China, India potentially, South Africa. Yep. They have commodities. Right. So they have something there as collateral. So this is interesting development. So we, we could see something like this coming in the future. I'm not going to say it's overnight. BRICS is not formalized as a, as a as an institution yet. And it's developing rapidly. It, yeah, it's, it's moving in that direction. So definitely to, something to look out for. Yes. Okay. And I just wanted to end on, uh, on a final little piece here because uh, the propaganda from the health security agency in the UK never ceases. Uh, so let's bring this on screen uh, because, Patrick, uh, London measles, tens of thousands of cases is what we're looking at here. We're staring down the barrel of tens of thousands of cases uh, of measles in London. So London is at risk. Uh, let's see what they're saying. Uh, UK HSA modeling suggests modeling that unless MMR vaccination rates improve, London could see a measles outbreak with tens of thousands of cases, tens of thousands of cases. What are we talking about between 40,000 and 160,000 cases in the capital? Uh, the rest of the country's fine, just London. This is it is. fatal, measles? Not really. Not really. But, when was the last time someone actually died of measles? But anyway, 1956. Who, who, who knows? But, know. but look, why, why are we worried about this? Well, of course, uh, because uh, the assessment uh, also, by the way, concludes that there's a high risk of cases uh, linked to Ooh. overseas travel. Oh, like holiday destinations, uh, right? Well, yeah, but uh, you know, we know how COVID got here, don't we? It got here. Dirty because, destinations. Right? So, so dirty yeah. destinations. Uh, but of course, uh, the risk uh, in London is primarily due to low vaccination rates. So we've got to get the vaccines going. Uh, further impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> so COVID somehow affects the measles? Is that what they're saying? That's what they're saying. I think we've got to bring Caroni back to explain how this all works. Well, This is like new science, Mike. Is this new science? Apparently. I thought it was malaria. Last week it was malaria. So it's now it's measles. It's everything. It's What's next week going to be? What are they going to have next week? Uh, who knows? Like a chicken pox epidemic or something? or Something like that. I mean, you you may have seen the uh, the... The uh, little, I don't know what that was that went across the screen there, but I did see it. It, it sort of was across. I thought it was more like a cringe. Well, no, it was fear. I mean, it was clearly fearful. So I think so he was cringing. I think, question. I think he was cringing at the uh, UK Health Security Agency saying, why all the fear mongering? 
during the uh, summer holidays. Isn't that what this is about? Yes. It's the summer holiday yes. season. Did you know that they're naming the heat waves now like hurricanes? Yes. Did you see? Isn't yes. that incredible? It is incredible. So it's like <laughs> the climate thing. Of course, climate's connected with the viruses. That's called the One Health agenda. That's called the One Health agenda. So anyway, we're going to end there for today. I'm going to say thank you very much to everybody for joining us. Uh, we will end on that little piece of fear. Do not be fearful. Uh, have a great weekend. If you're a UK column member and you're sticking with us for X, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Otherwise, we'll see you on Monday at 1 p.m. as usual. Get out and enjoy some climate change this weekend, wherever you are. If it isn't raining, have fun. See you then. Bye-bye.